I will work day in and day out. Wake up and smell the coffee. We want to return to the European Union. Another future is possible, but we've got to fight for it. Order! Hello and welcome to the Debated Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Will. And in this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by Michaela Rong, uh, a journalist for many years with Reuters and the Financial Times, author of five books on Africa, including the book that we're going to be discussing today. Do not disturb the story of a political murder and an African regime gone bad. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you all. Now, um, the first question I'd like to ask is what made you decide to um, write this particular book? Um, yes. Well, what happened was in uh, January uh, 2014, January the 1st, I began noticing emails doing the rounds amongst uh, my um, correspondent friends, my reporter friends, who were saying uh, amongst themselves, have you seen what's happened to Patrick? And I was like, who are you talking about? Because it turns out I've got about three or four uh, journalist friends who are called Patrick. And I was thinking, oh, God, this sounds like bad news. Mm. Uh, And it turned out that actually they were talking about Patrick Karagaya, who was Rwanda's former head of external intelligence. Uh, and who, you know, everyone on the group had known because um, we had all covered Rwanda post-genocide in 1994. Um, He had quickly established himself as a very sort of smooth and charming uh, kind of press man. He was head of external intelligence, but he was also the guy who used to hang out with the journalists who would schmooze them, who would kind of... uh, you know, organize presidential interviews, who'd sort of butter them up and give them the the official narrative. And what had happened is he'd been strangled uh, in a hotel room in South Africa, the Michelangelo Hotel, um, lured to that hotel by a, a businessman friend, a Rwandan businessman friend who he clearly trusted. Uh, and it looked uh, pretty clear that it had just been a, a trap, an ambush set up, Uh, And what was really shocking was it was clear that this was set up by the Rwandan state. um, And therefore, that meant that uh, Rwanda's president, Paul Kagame, had basically ordered the assassination of one of his oldest friends because Patrick Karagai and Paul Kagame went way back. They'd known each other since they were they were children. They'd they'd been to the same schools together. They had been rebels together in Uganda, joined the Rwandan Patriotic Front. So this was a very personal assassination. And I think we were all a bit stunned. Um, and after sort of looking and reading up on what had happened, slowly, slowly, it took me a while, I began to think this is a really fascinating story and it needs to be told. And at the start, I assumed that other people were probably also thinking the same thing and had already started. Uh, and in fact, what I realized when I finally contacted his family was that uh, nobody wanted to touch this subject with a barge pole because it was so controversial and because writing it would basically mean taking on board this entire image that Paul Kagame, the president, has constructed of himself and of Rwanda ever since the genocide and and basically sort of knocking holes in that image. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've given a bit of um, insight into um, the, 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 the kind of situation in the book, but could you give us... Um, a bit of an overview as to who uh, Paul Kagame is and, and, and how he came to power in Rwanda. Yes, I think he's a fascinating individual. Uh, like a lot of um, of uh, heads of state uh, or driven leaders, uh, you'll you'll often find that they came from quite um, you know disadvantaged backgrounds. That was certainly the case. He, he came from an aristocratic 
um, royal family uh, or members of the uh, Tutsi minority in Rwanda originally. But his family, like most of the members of, of, of that uh, royal court, were expelled from Rwanda in the 19, uh, late 1950s, early 1960s. And they fled into neighboring countries. Um, a lot of them uh, established themselves in southwest Uganda, uh, living in refugee camps. Uh, where they were reliant on World Food Program rationing, uh, and and were really kind of so aristocrats who had been brought low uh, because there'd been an, a revolution, the Hutu revolution had taken place inside Rwanda, and the majority of Hutus had um, uh, over you know overturned the Tutsi aristocracy uh, and seized power, um, and, and so he had a tough upbringing, and I think that has really left its mark on him. Um, he 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 then went on. He was a bit of a feckless youth. Uh, went on to be recruited by Yoweri Museveni um, in in Uganda to join the National Resistance Movement, which was a guerrilla group that Yoweri Museveni set up to uh, take on uh, Ugandan President Milton Obote. Um, so he learned early on. He became a guerrilla. Uh, he he was trained in intelligence work in Tanzania. Um, and uh, when Yoweri Museveni's NRM um, seized power in 1986, uh, Kagame was one of a group of people from that community, uh, that Banyarwanda community, as it was known, to get high-ranking positions in the new Ugandan army. And there, along with his friend, he was one of a group uh, who clustered around Fred Rijema, who was his friend, um, and Fred, Fred Rajema was um, uh, the most charismatic of these young Banya Rwanda fighters. Um, and they decided that they wanted to take the skills they had acquired, thanks to all that experience being rebels, guerrilla fighters under Yoweri Museveni, take those skills uh, and go back home. And that meant going back to Rwanda across the border uh, and taking with them uh, their weapons their training, their experience, their understanding of, uh, of uh, guerrilla uh, warfare. Um, and they did that in 1990. And what happened was that Fred Rajema, who was this adored young leader, was killed on day two of that invasion in 1990. Um, and, and Kagame then took his place. Um, and uh, you see this change very early on because Kagame was a very different kettle of fish. Um, and while he was very much respected by the people in what was then had already been called the Rwandan Patriotic Front, um, he was um, he was feared rather than loved, uh, and he knew it. He knew that he wasn't anything like as popular as Fred Rajema, uh, and, an, and some of people refer to him as an accidental president. Uh, and so he becomes the sort of key figure um, for a long time. He's 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 not officially the 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 leading. Uh, the, the the leader of the RPF, but um, but everyone knows that really he's running the show, um, and uh, this is the movement that um, uh, took power in Rwanda in 1994 after the genocide. Um, there are widespread suspicions that say, it was the RPF that brought down the plane on which Juvenal Habyarimana, the president, the Hutu president mm -hmm. of Rwanda, was traveling, which triggered the genocide. They took power in July that year after between half a million and 800,000 people died. Um, and then they began, you know, refashioning and rebuilding the country because the genocide was, of course, one of the most devastating events in African recent African history. 
um, and the place was in ruins and a huge proportion of the Hutu population had fled uh, because they didn't want to be living in a country ruled by the RPF. They were terrified of this movement. So um, they were living in refugee camps on the outskirts. So the RPF set about rebuilding the country, luring back or um, sort of donor support. They needed a lot of foreign aid in the early years. Um, and uh, there was a sort of uh, hardcore group of uh, very, very intelligent um, uh, RPF leaders. Patrick Karagaya was just one of them. Um, he was the head of intelligence, but there were also a key set of generals. Um, and what you see with the years passing is that that group of uh, RPS, uh, sort of that elite that had come mostly from Uganda was English speaking. Uh, slowly its members begin to fall out with um, Kagame um, and they end up being jailed um, or fleeing the country because they think their lives are in danger uh, or being assassinated. Um, uh, and they flee abroad and set, you know, many of them, this sort of hardcore of them set up this opposition group known as the Rwanda National Congress. That was uh, one of the, the group that Patrick Karagaya um, was a co-founder of. Um, and they start to denounce Paul Kagame as a dictator and to say, you know, pointing out that he is rigging elections, uh, that he doesn't tolerate political dissent that journalists are disappearing or being killed, and that this is not what they fought um, uh, for. This is not, you know, why they invaded the country and yeah. took on uh, the former Hutu army. So I think now you have a real dichotomy because on the one hand, you know, Paul Kagame has been extremely adept at courting, seducing the the West, and so and and not just the West. I mean, he. He seems to be constantly jetting around the world now, walking along red carpets, you know, mm -hmm. at uh, mili military parades. Yeah. In his, uh, and he's, you know, constantly being in, invited to places like Davos or, or to give speeches. And he's regarded as this great sort of the man who saved Rwanda and rebuilt Rwanda. And, uh, and Rwanda is tailed as a development uh, miracle story. But um, there's also uh, a huge amount of contestation from uh, members uh, not only of his own um, uh, his own country, but uh, his own state, but also uh, his own uh, Tutsi minority, who are saying, "No, you know, this is not what it seems. This is a really frighteningly repressive country um, where freedom of thought uh, uh, is is completely crushed. Uh, you know, where demonstrations never happen, where the head of the opposition." Victoire in Gavire spent eight years in jail and is now under house arrest. Um, and uh, you know, this is this this man is not what he seems and mm. not what he is widely hailed as uh, and praised for being. So I think there's a real schism now into uh, uh, between how how Kagame is seen often in the West um, and uh, how he's seen uh, by um, you know the people who knew him best. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and and of course. Um, as, as as part of uh, Kagame's regime, um, the genocide, as, as, as you touched upon, is very much wrapped up in that. I mean, how how well understood do you think the Rwandan genocide is internationally? It's certainly something that I think quite a lot of people know about, but do, do you think it's something that they fully understand as to what actually happened? 
Um, no, I don't. I don't think they do understand it because what you're you're seeing, sadly, is and this started right, you know, from the get go. And one of the things I say in my book is that I fell for it just as much as anybody. I mm. I try to be honest about that. Is that that you have this sort of scenario painted in which there is only one group of victims, and they are all members of the Tutsi minority, um, and uh, uh, you know their their death their massacres, these horrific massacres that t- undoubtedly took place. I mean, I was there and saw, saw the traces of the massacres and saw the bodies. Um, you know, those are commemorated every every year on April the 6th, and there's a genocide memorial. There are many genocide memorials. Um, and if you visit the country, you, can, you will be taken to see them. But the trouble is it's a partial story. Um, so uh, firstly, what, one of the elements I find most disturbing is the way in which the figures are being routinely inflated. Um, so if you look at the kind of figures for the death toll um, of people strictly killed during that genocide, uh, uh, that whole genocide chapter um, at the beginning in the 1990s and what, are, what is being cited now, you see people talking um, not only uh, you know, do they use the one million figure, but there are now government officials in Rwanda who who routinely will talk about two million, uh, and so you sort of see this sort of massive inflation of figures, um, uh, as though uh, this this is sort of is a special pleading. Because one of the things that um, the Rwandan government uh, worked out early on is that there was no better way to get the sympathy of the world and the um, uh, and the uh, indulgence of the world and the tolerance of maybe hardline authoritarian. Uh, measures being introduced by Kagame then to constantly remind the world that it did nothing uh, to stop the genocide taking place. So there, there's that element, which is this sort of inflation of figures. And then the, the one-sided element, which is really key, is is that um, what, what the years, as the years have go by, more and more evidence has emerged. And there was, there was quite a lot of evidence at the start, uh, but the, uh, a lot of the donors, the diplomats, didn't really want to focus on, upon it because the emphasis was on you know, we have to rebuild this country. Mm. This is a government we can work with, a new government. Let's work with them. But the the evidence that has emerged now of uh, atrocities and massacres committed by uh, Kagame's RPF uh, after it invaded in 1990 and before uh, the plane came down in 1994, there's more and more uh, memoirs and testimony um, uh, from Hutu survivors about uh, about the deaths Um uh, uh, and the, the massacres carried out by the RPF. And then also we know from the reports um, drawn up by American investigator Robert Gersoni that there were mass killings uh, by the RPF taking place, you know, almost immediately after um, uh, the, the RPF seized power in Kigali, inside Rwanda. Um, and then uh, there's been absolutely damning testimony that uh, the RPF, uh, when it chased uh, down the members of the Hutu army and Hutu extremists who were responsible for the genocide, it, it crossed the border um, so in support of uh, a rebel movement called the AFDL. It hunted them down in the forests of Congo. Uh, and um, you know there were 617 separate incidents. And when we say incidents, what we mean is massacres. Yeah. Uh, the UN has, has investigated these incidents in, you know, in great depth, there's absolutely no doubt. And people believe, you know, they it's absolutely, you know, certain that tens of thousands of people died in those incidents. Um, uh, it's quite likely that hundreds of thousands of people were killed. 
Um, so, uh, and nobody, you know, nobody ever talks about these dead. And when, when they are talked about, for exa example, the Congolese um, gynecologist Dennis Mukwege is constantly harping on uh, about these deaths and these massacres because there's been absolutely no follow through in, in terms of uh, trials or, or, or invest you know, uh, uh, official inquiries. Um, uh, uh, you know, it's it's just people just want to f forget about mm. this. Um, whereas, you know, we see endless sort of um, emphasis on bringing to book the people who committed the genocide, the last uh, sort of genocide who are still in hiding abroad. You know, the UN just recently um, arrested somebody in Cape Town, a, a former police officer with a, a huge amounts of blood on his hands it, uh, by the sound of it. Um, so it's a very partial history. It's a it's a history in which you know uh, only only one side of the equation is ever being held to account uh, and and being lambasted in in public and and the other player because the other player now holds power in Rwanda um, gets off scot free. Mm. Um, how much um, do you think France's role? in the events surrounding the genocide is, is recognised because th there is a clear debate over um, France's in involvement ju just before the um, the genocide started, isn't there? Yeah, well, I mean, um, uh, France had a long tradition, as did the US, um, uh, uh, you know, and, and the UK, of supporting certain favoured strongmen. Uh, during uh, the Cold War in particular. And one of its uh, favoured strongmen uh, was Mobutu in Zaire, and the another one was Juvenal Habyarimana in Rwanda. So when his um, his uh, regime came under attack by the RPF, France, you know, very much sort of saw its role as as saving the regime and propping it up militarily. Um, and uh, and so we know that you know the French were in there training the army, uh, and that meant uh, that these militias in Terahamwe. Um, uh, who, who were sort of, um, you know, uh, extra curricular mm. um, uh, offshoot of the army uh, were also benefiting from French uh, training. Um, and all of that came under a microscope after um, Kagame, uh, Kagame's uh, rebel group took over. Um, and for a long time, uh, the French position, you know, was, uh, well, we regard these people as rebel usurpers. And uh, there was even an attempt to uh, arrest uh, Kagame one time when he was traveling through Paris. Uh, and the French had, had also played a, a, a rather mischievous role in that they were so loyal to their client state that they had helped, uh, you know, uh, as the government in Kigali fell apart and the RPFs marched across the country, they'd helped to evacuate some of the worst uh, criminals responsible. These were high-ranking people in the Habyarimana uh, regime who had committed the, the, who had sort of, you know, been responsible for 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 sending out orders um, to the people who committed the genocide. Um, so uh, France had played a, a a really fairly disgraceful role, and for a long time the French were in denial about that and. Um, there was very bad relations with with the RPS, and this really culminated in the, in the moment where uh, uh, an investigating magistrate decided to issue arrest warrants against key members of the RPF and accused them of bringing down Juvenile Habyarimana's plane. 
Um, uh, and so that, that really was a sort of low point in relations. But what we've seen uh, in recent years is that uh, at a certain point, and this already had happened under Nicolas Sarkozy, the president, and Nicolas Sarkozy, that there was a determination to sort of turn things around, uh, admit that France had sort of, you know, done wrong in Rwanda, um, and that, uh, you know, its record was a pretty shameful one. Um, and so there was a, a whole investigation launched in France, which produced the Duclair report. Um, Emmanuel Macron, following in the footsteps of Sarkozy, um, ended up going to uh, Kigali um, to shake hands with Kigame um, and to admit, I mean, they, there was not an official apology, but to admit that, Rwanda, uh, that France had sort of played a, you know, uh, 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 a collaborative mm -hmm. role, that it, there was a certain level of French complicity yeah. in the genocide. So that was a pretty remarkable uh, turnabout. Uh, I'm afraid I see this a, a, as a very cynical um, uh, period. I think in France, uh, when I read what the French press uh, is writing about Kagame, uh, I think there's a sense of, because there's a profound sense of shame about France's record um, in Rwanda, uh, there's also a disinclination to uh, perhaps acknowledge that Kagame himself is not exactly uh, a choir boy uh, and that he's got a huge amount of blood on his hands and that he's also uh, playing a very, very destructive role um, thanks to his uh, frequent military interventions over the years, over the decades into neighboring Congo in destabilizing the entire region. I mean, uh, it's pretty widely uh, acknowledged now, including by the UN and including by France, um, that he that Rwandan, uh, Rwanda is supporting uh, and arming and equipping the M23 rebel movement that is laying waste to Eastern Congo. Uh, so that's all Paul Kagame's work. But there's a disinclination to face that fact because France is so embarrassed about the role that uh, Francois Mitterrand, the socialist president, played in supporting Juvenal Habyarimana, who was the president who oversaw a genocide. Mm. Um, uh, well, he didn't oversee it because he died before it started, but who, you know, he was certainly responsible for the 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 creation of a toxic society in which the the genocide became, you know, <laughs> then followed uh, upon that. Um, so um, I I think uh, you know I look at France and I think wow you're doing exactly you're making exactly the same mistake as you did. Um, when um, when Habyari, when Mitterrand was supporting Habyarimana, you are uh, you know you you're absolutely uncritically supporting um, an African dictator who is you know destabilizing um, the entire region. And the reason France is doing it is is very cynical as well because um, it has um, it has uh, interests in places like Mozambique. It's got a total liquefied gas installation that was threatened by a jihadist movement. Uh, it's finding itself, uh, its troops and its ambassadors increasingly are being shown door in, the, in Western Africa and the Sahel region. And it realizes that it, it can get um, uh, Rwanda to, um, to send forces to those countries and um, protect French interests. Um, and so there's, a, there's been a deal done with uh, Kagame and uh, you know Kagame is as uh, is back uh, getting a lot of French aid again. I mean, a nice fat package of aid was announced. Um, uh, I think it was a year and a half ago. 
Um, so it seems to me that you're seeing a sort of history repeating itself. And I, I, I find it sort of unbelievable that the French can't see that this is this is exactly the same game that turned sour on them back in 1994. And that, uh, you know, if you support uh, a dictator uh, who has absolutely no compulsion in ordering sort of, you know, <laughs> mass killings when mm. when he feels it it suits his purpose this will come back to bite you mm -hmm. I, I mean i on on that point um why do you think that the the international community hasn't done more to to tackle uh kagami's regime and what what why do you think it is so um keen to to roll out the red carpet for him he's currently um chair of the commonwealth it it, it, it seems quite extraordinary given um, what he's doing in his um, his 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 own country and and outside it to those who who criticise his regime, the way that the international community is is responding to him. Why do you think it's responding yeah. in that way? Well, I think uh, at the start there was a, a real sense of guilt um, over the the West's failure to intervene to stop the genocide, and that worked. You know, that was a card that the Rwandans could keep playing very effectively for a long time. Uh, and therefore, it, 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 there was a sense of such guilt that, um, uh, you know, uh, no one wanted to look too closely at the RPF's own record. Mm. Um, uh, then I think what we saw happening, and, and I think not enough attention is paid to this, is that you saw Rwanda um, realizing that if it could present itself um, and play the game of being a developmental miracle, um, it would be uh, allowed all sorts of leeway. Um, and so you see um, a, a very small state that has worked out how to tick the various boxes that really impress um, development officials. Um, and so, you know, on sustainable development goals, Rwanda always scores brilliantly well, you know, maternal health, on COVID, anti, you know, anti-COVID measures, on primary school education, uh, all, all, all those boxes, it, it ticks. And this this is very important to the West because the West sort of spent decades, you know, s sending aid, foreign aid into Africa. And, you know, there's a huge amount of cynicism amongst Western publics who are saying, well, what have we got to show for it? Mm. Um, but, you know, in Rwanda, uh, there's this sort of shining beacon of apparent developmental success. And then, you know, development officials will say, okay, yes, it's not a democracy, but, but you know, where is? And anyway, that's none of our business. Um, uh, my, my answer to that is always, if you look at the figures a little more closely, the statistics, the record is nothing like as impressive as Rwanda likes to make out and that there's a lot of wishful thinking on the part of Western donors. Uh, but finally, I would say that there are now some very special specific interests that the West um, is pursuing and that Rwanda has learned how to sort of uh, cater to those needs. So France needs um, uh, fighters, it needs African fighters to do the fighting that French troops used to do in Africa and no longer can because they're not welcome. So you see uh, uh, Rwandan forces um, you know, deploying around that total installation in Mozambique, which is set to start working again, having been rendered inactive by that jihadist uh, rebel group. Um, uh, so France has got every interest in supporting uh, Kagame as a kind of, um, you know, it's like 
um, Rwanda is playing the the role of, of Wagner for France. You know, it's their, their mercenary force that can be deploy, deployed at short notice and and extremely effectively because everyone is is agreed that the Rwandan army is is really very good at what it does. Um, and in Britain here, you know, what you see and and this is a plan that we see. Denmark was also quite keen on on rolling out a similar plan. Germany's been talking in similar terms. Um, that you see the offshoring of asylum uh, processing um, with this this um, this uh, negotiation between Britain uh, and Rwanda, uh, which uh, the the deal signed so that all um, illegal uh, asylum seekers coming to the UK would be flown immediately to Rwanda to have their requests um, processed there. Um, now this has hit the courts and is in trouble in the courts. So we had an initial ruling. You know, last year that yes, it was legal, and then recently on appeal, uh, the judge said no, it isn't legal, mm. and it's going to go to the Supreme Court probably around Christmas time. Um, and my own view is that no one will ever go to Rwanda um, because by the time you know we have a Supreme Court ruling, we'll be in pre-election mode, um, and it will just not not be a priority. But I could be proved wrong. Uh, but that means that ever since um, that deal was signed between Priti Patel, our former Home Secretary, and um, and uh, Rwanda, that the Brits simply won't utter a single word of criticism about what they see Rwanda doing uh, at home, locking up journalists, uh, you know, uh, crushing the opposition, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, kidnapping and, and uh, staging kangaroo court trials of people like Paul Rousseff Abigina, the hotelier, um, uh, and also, you know, Rwanda's intervention in Congo and in support of the M23. The British government simply won't say a word about that um, uh, ever since Priti Patel signed the deal because, of course, that's that, that will be very embarrassing to criticize Kigame just at the time where Suella Brahman, the new Home Secretary, is busy telling everyone what a safe place, what a wonderful place it is to send asylum seekers. So uh, basically, uh, by signing that deal, uh, the UK has censored itself. And it's really striking if you compare what the UK says now about Rwanda in public and what it used to say about Rwanda, the concerns it used to, ri uh, to raise about um, the harassment of journalists, uh, the mistreatment of, of prisoners in jail, disappearances, um, uh, uh, arbitrary arrest, all of these things where, you know, he used to publicly say it was very concerned about them. Mm. Uh, now it won't, won't say a word. Uh, and it's, it's really striking that the UK's position, if you compare it to the, the US, which is very vocal on all these issues, I mean, they're now speaking a completely different language. Uh, and I, I think it's just really sad to see the way in which uh, a, a right-wing government here in the UK has basically nobbled itself because it was so desperate to get rid of uh, illegal immigrants. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that part of the way that the, the government is able to make the justification um, of Rwanda being a, a safe country for asylum seekers is the genocide because it's certainly something that i've seen uh, mentioned by some conservative mps do you think that they're, they're um taking on um the um similar sort of language that perhaps kagame's uh, regime has used in regards to the the genocide and oh, using yeah. it as a, a a way to you know you you, you can't criticize the rwandan government because of that 
Well, yes, absolutely. It's it's what the Rwandans have always done, which is whenever you criticize, and Kagame does this always when he is criticized in public, uh, he will literally say to people, you know, who are you to criticize our human rights record? Where were you when we when my people were being massacred in the streets? You know, sort of check bands, uh, checkpoints, and 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 cut down with machetes. Um, the problem is, as we all know, two rights don't make a uh, two wrongs don't make a right. So the fact that the, U, uh, the international community did not really uh, behave uh, as well as we, we would would have liked it done during the genocide um, does not mean that uh, Kagame should be allowed to get away with um, with uh, uh, what is basically uh, an appalling uh, human rights record both at home and, uh, and abroad in his neighbouring countries. Mm-hmm. Um, just um, broadening out to. Um... Africa as a, as, as, a, as a continent. Why do you think that both politicians and, and the public often think of Africa in only monolithic terms, that there are so many people outside of um, Africa who seem to confuse Africa as a continent um, with the diverse and varied nations that, that make it up? Because, you know, Africa is clearly an incredibly diverse continent. Rwanda is very different from Egypt, from Morocco, from Uganda, etc. Why do you think there's that willingness to try and lump all of Africa together by both some politicians and, and some members of the public? Yeah, I mean, I, I as somebody who has spent nearly 30 years now writing about Africa and, and traveling around Africa, um, I'm, I'm constantly stunned um, by how different the various countries, you know, 54 countries, how, how diverse they are, how different their histories are, uh, their cultural traditions, uh, their, their social issues. Um, and, and also, I'm always struck by how little people in the West know about them and know about the differences. And I think, you know, there there are reasons for this. I mean, uh, one of the reasons is we, we have a generation now, um, the the people who, who used to have maybe members of the family who were colonial officers um, uh, who had served in Ghana or Kenya or mm. Nigeria, or, 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 or you know, went out to South Africa to work in the mines, or or ran S, you know, Shell, or, 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 or you know, th- that that generation is dying off, you know. Mm. So, so that link it, it has gone. Um, maybe you know, some of us had grandparents who had, had sort of, um, you know, worked trying to sort of roll that education um, in in various parts of Africa, and they're gone now. And and we're not doing that anymore. So that link has been broken. Um, I think there are also some really solid um, reasons. I, I mean, very few of us go on a holiday to Africa. Mm. If you go on a holiday to Africa, we'll only go to certain safe, seen as safe places like uh, you know Kenya, South Africa, Tanzania to push. So you know, there's not that sort of. I went there on holiday, and therefore I know where it is, and I know it's different. The Kenyans differ from Tanzania, and that both of them are different from Uganda. That that kind of knowledge isn't there. But um, I, I I used to work for the Financial Times, and what really struck me was that um, how little economic reporting I ever did for the Financial Times. They were interested in what was going on politically because it had massive implications. But the reason you know I very rarely wrote an economic story out of Africa, and it was because. You know, economically, financially, Africa was completely irrelevant most of the time. Uh, you know, the African continent still only accounts for three percent of world trade, which is absolutely tiny. 
Um, and so, you know, there's not there's not that that need to know about Africa because it's going to impact on all of us. Um, Africa will impact on all of us, and not not because of world trade, but because of you know probably because of uh, climate change and and, uh, uh, and and the migrant issue. Um, but but I think uh, you know we tend to know about these places that really matter to us uh, in a series of personal ways or or financial, economic, or political ways, and and Africa often just seems a, a bit irrelevant. Um, so I think that that's that's probably the reason. I have to say that you know um, as the West sort of continues to fail to understand Africa or get to grips with its particularities, other you know other nations are engaging with it more um and you know what what you're seeing is a sort of stage in which the, the us the uk and even france you know um are no longer big players in the in the way they used to be uh in africa and what you're seeing instead is uh, you know uh, china's a very big player um russia's sniffing around now um uh turkey uh, Lebanon, United Arab Emirates. Um, these are countries that are engaging with Africa. Um, and I think, uh, you know, we, we, we've reached a post-Cold War era in which, um, uh, you know, the, the players are different. Um, and the, the West is largely looking at Africa in, in terms of, you know, uh, and, uh, the problems posed by jihadism. That's really the main concern for, for capitals in, in the West, you know, is Africa going to become a breeding ground for, for the kind of uh, Islamic extremism that, that proved to be such a challenge and such a danger in, in the Middle East? Mm. But, but otherwise, there's a sort of um, pulling back, I think. I think that's been gradual and, 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 and a steady pulling back and pulling out. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, um, we're coming towards uh, the end of the podcast, Michaela. Thank you uh, for taking the time to speak to me, but I, I do have one final question. In regards to the book, mm. what do you hope um, people, when they have finished reading it, will take away from it? What What do you hope that you will most be able to impress upon anybody who is either reading the book or, or has just finished the book? Well, I think there, there are two things. One is, uh, I, I in my books, my books are very accessible and they focus on often on personalities Mm -hmm. individuals and i do that because you know when you've been in these countries and spent time in them you realize what sort of shakespearean characters you're often describing and and these kind of extraordinary itineraries they've been on and these sort of rise and fall of of empires Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's been a privilege for me to be able to comment on and write about them and interview often the key players. And I just want to convey that because, you know, it isn't just a sort of 54 undifferentiated countries. It's the extraordinary, turbulent um, histories and, and, and larger-than-life characters who have shaped the destiny of Africa. And I hope that by writing in an accessible way and drawing out these complex individuals, that people will sort of get it and sort of remember, you know, who, who these people are and, and you know uh, how, how these countries were shaped and, and have changed because they've all gone through dramatic changes. Um, uh, you know, if you look at Uganda, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, and and Kaga- and Rwanda over the last you know twenty five thirty years, I mean, my God, what a series of, of of dramatic events they've been through. 
Uh, but the other thing is more specifically towards Rwanda. I do think that there's been a sort of Potemkin village constructed uh, around Rwanda. I think there's, uh, I often think of the analogy between the kind of great press and admiration that the left used to give um, uh, Stalin, you know, early on in his uh, his reign when, you know, before we knew that uh, so many people had died as a result of his policies and uh, the sort of nastiness and, and brutality of it all. Um, and I think, um, you know, that similarly with Kagame, that this is a, a very, this is one of the most repressive regimes in Africa today. And it's, it is weird and um, and 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 disturbing to see it being routinely praised in the way it currently is. And I, I, in writing my book, I was just sort of wanting to say to people, do you even know who you're dealing with? Because this is not the man. You know, I have interviewed him a couple of times, and I have seen, you know, what the RPS, how it has changed and and morphed, and what it now represents in Africa, what it's doing in the region. And you think, you know, you really need to inform yourselves rather better. And, and in terms of Britain, I mean, the idea that we would be sending people who are fleeing persecution to this repressive country that is Rwanda, um, I mean, it's just surreal. So I, I, I wrote the book long before the Priti, Priti Patel signed her deal with uh, with uh, Paul Kagame. But um, I would just like a certain sense of reality to crystallize in here in the West. Mm, absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, once again uh, for coming on the podcast if people want to find out more about you if people want to buy uh, a copy of the book where should they go to to do those things um well I, I you know obviously there is more than one place that you can buy books so i'm always a bit wary of mentioning amazon but all of my books can be bought on amazon um, my publisher in the uk is um is fourth estate which is harper harper collins so you can also buy direct uh, from the harper collins website uh, a lot of good bookshops uh, uh, have have it in stock on their shelves, and some of my other books as well. In the in the US, uh, it's Public Affairs, which is part of the Hachette uh, imprint, and again, you know, it's all available um, on on Amazon uh, and also on Hachette and Public Affairs' websites. Um, so yeah, and it's uh, what's very nice for me is there's an audio version of the book which I read out myself. It just about killed me, but I read it. Um, and uh, there's also an ebook for people who who can't get access to bookshops or you know Amazon. If you're living in Africa, Amazon doesn't really work, but you can get an ebook copy delivered to your Kindle. Um, so that there, there are many many ways in which to access this book. Fantastic! Thank you once again for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for being so interested. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbeam and Amazon Music. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Debated Podcast, like us on Facebook, Debated Podcast, and if you'd like to get in touch with us, whether about appearing on an episode of the podcast or commenting on an episode that you've listened to, you can do so at thedebatedpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you listen to the next one.